Fresh from Mount Sinai, we bring you the eighth Psychopharm commandment. Avoid unwise polypharmacy. Welcome to the Carlette Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the editor-in-chief and the author of the Depression and Bipolar Workbook. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Before we venture into the weeds of polypharmacy, here's a preview of the CME quiz for this episode. One, recently, a large randomized controlled trial tested the antipsychotic Brepsipiprazole as an add-on to stimulants in ADHD. What was the result? A. Brexpiprazole improved symptoms of ADHD. B. Bexpiprazole worsened symptoms of ADHD. C. Brexpiprazole did not change symptoms of ADHD. D. Brexpiprazole reduced stimulant side effects. Enter your answer and earn CME credits through the link in the show notes. Long ago, there were only five classes of psychiatric medications, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, antidepressants, stimulants, and GABAergic sedatives like barbiturates and benzodiazepines. That was in the 1950s. But today, psychiatry has advanced, well, maybe not. For the most part, we are still laboring with the same five classes. What has changed? is that these psychotropics have become more tolerable, if not more effective. The barbiturates were stronger than Ambien or Restoril. Halopyridol is still valued for its potency in psychosis and mania, and it's hard to argue that the SSRIs are more effective than their predecessors, the MAOIs and the tricyclics. We have more options, but fewer cures. And what that means in practice is more polypharmacy. If we're not getting full recovery on one antidepressant and we have lots of tolerable options to pick from, why not add another and another and another? Actually, the rates of polypharmacy have remained high since the 1960s, somewhere between 30 to 50% of patients with chronic mood or psychotic disorders are taking more than one medication. What has changed over these years is the rate of a certain type of polypharmacy called quadrapharmacy. That's when the patient takes four or more pills, and that rate has shot up in the past 15 years. We don't know why, but there was a notable shift in 2004. That's when the combo pills returned to the market starting with Symbiax, the fluoxetine-olanzapine combo for bipolar and treatment-resistant depression, which was FDA-approved on Christmas Eve 2003. More recently, we've added the combo pills, olanzapine semidorphin, Labalvi, and bupropion dextromethorphan, Ovality, not to mention a slew of medications that are FDA-approved to augment other meds, most of them antipsychotics. But in the past, we had a long hiatus from combo pills, which were very popular in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, 
but went out of favor in the early 1980s. There were antidepressant antipsychotic combos like Triavil, antidepressant benzodiazepine combos like Limbitrol, and even a dextroamphetamine Thorazine combo, Thoradex. These fell off the market as doctors realized there was little evidence to support their benefits, and evidence all around of them of problems, particularly tardive dyskinesia in the mood disorder population, who were taking tricyclics with antipsychotics. It just wasn't worth it, and with their demise came a rise in articles that argued against the random shotgun approach of polypharmacy. Basically, psychiatrists got real to the fact that they didn't know enough about what their meds were doing and ought to proceed with caution. Today's thought leaders are not quite as outspoken about polypharmacy as they were 20 years ago. Maybe the Symbiacs and Libalvi dinner programs have loosened them up, but I wouldn't jump to that cynicism. Most of the arguments against polypharmacy were that it's just not evidence-based, which is no different from arguing that buspirone shouldn't be used in PTSD or sertraline in bipolar disorder. These are monotherapies, but they're not evidence-based either. But now we have more evidence supporting polypharmacy, at least for combinations of two. And our thought leaders have turned their criticisms toward combinations of four, quadrapharmacy. The legendary Sheldon Prescorn, who helped develop many of the antidepressants that we use today, expressed his own biases about polypharmacy openly in a 2007 article that criticized the practice. The reader should also be aware of our biases. Monodrug therapy, the ideal. Co-pharmacy, commonly needed. Triple pharmacy, may be necessary. Quadruple pharmacy, before adding a fourth, first consider that the other three drugs are not working. At that stage, there is a pretty good chance of that, that the other drugs are not working. Most psychiatric drugs have a number needed to treat around four, which means that patients have a one in four chance of really responding to it. So if a patient is on four medications, that translates to around a one in 16 chance that they are responding to all four of them. Those figures seem awfully low, but they are actually the best case scenarios because they come from the FDA registration trials where patients with pure, classic diagnoses are enrolled. We'd expect that number needed to treat to be much worse when the med is used off-label in patients with complex comorbidities, major medical problems, active substance misuse, or suicidality, all the things that are not enrolled in major pharmaceutical trials. And those are more likely in the patients who end up on polypharmacy. So Dr. Prescorn does have a good point. When a patient is taking four meds, the odds are very strong that at least one of them is not working. On the other hand, when I see a complex patient on multiple medications, they often get worse when I try to taper one of them off. Why is that? Well, the number needed to treat does not include the placebo effect which is around 50% of the benefit of most medications. And when you take away a med that the patient feels they need, you get the opposite. 
the nocebo effect. They get worse. Kelly, you've had a pretty high success rate with reducing polypharmacy. What is your secret? There are four steps to a polypharm makeover. One, make sure they are ready. This isn't going to work as well if it's their first visit. You don't have a therapeutic alliance, or they're doing really well on the combo. Two, set the stage. The goal here is to help them break free from any psychological attachment to the meds. Get them out of that passive dependent mode of, I can't exist without these meds, and into a more active stance where they are taking control of their treatment. Start with questions like, do you feel like these meds are actually working? And as they realize that they aren't really thriving on this combination, go through the meds one by one and ask them what they take them for. Usually they don't know. Or they think it must be working because a doctor prescribed it. But they can't say how it has helped. I'll drop hints that the meds might not be such a good idea. Like I'll talk about side effects. I'll single out ones that are experimental, like Abilify for generalized anxiety disorder. Or how the mechanisms cancel each other out, like a stimulant and an antipsychotic. Or in a patient with rapid cycling, an antidepressant and a mood stabilizer. Three. Give hope. I'll open up the possibility that they might feel better coming off the med. I'll use patient examples, like for someone on a high-dose benzo, I'll say, a lot of patients feel mentally sharper as they lower the dose. They have better balance and coordination. They're quicker on their feet and not as groggy. Four, taper slowly. Nearly every psychiatric med has a withdrawal syndrome. Of course, serotonergic meds and benzos, but also antipsychotics, anticonvulsants, tricyclics, metazapine, and stimulants. We just don't talk about those withdrawals much because they aren't as serious. But they are for a fragile patient who might interpret mild withdrawal symptoms as a sign that they are getting worse. The longer they've been on the meds, the more likely their brain is accommodated and will experience some withdrawal. So unless there's an urgent need to get them off, I'll taper slowly, inching down to the next available dosage about every two weeks. Sometimes patients end up on polypharmacy because they never got to a therapeutic dose of the med that could have worked. Like a patient with bipolar disorder who comes to me on 100 milligrams of quetiapine, 300 milligrams of oxcarbamazepine, 50 milligrams of sertraline, and 2 milligrams a day of clonazepam. Now, only one of those meds is actually effective in bipolar disorder, the quetiapine, Seroquel. And had they brought it to a therapeutic dose of at least 300 milligrams, the patient might not have needed the others. That point was proven in a classic study of lithium and paroxetine from the 1990s, where paroxetine brought no benefit to bipolar disorder as long as the lithium was at an adequate dose and therapeutic level, like above 0.6, or at or above 0.6. In fact, lithium is one of the meds that often eliminates the need for polypharmacy. About one in three patients with bipolar disorder are very good lithium responders, and after they recover on it, they are often able to taper off other medications. Another med with that effect is clozapine in schizophrenia. Treatment-resistant cases of schizophrenia often end up on multiple meds, 
you know, like two antipsychotics, an anticonvulsant, an antidepressant, and a benzo. Once they get on clozapine, the others can be slowly taken away. Sometimes polypharmacy is totally rational and evidence-based. Examples where we have evidence of additive benefits with two medications include in bipolar disorder, an anticonvulsant lithium combo, particularly Depakote, lamotrigine, or carbamazepine with lithium. In bipolar depression or mania, adding an antipsychotic to a mood stabilizer. In unipolar depression, adding an augmentation agent like lithium, an atypical antipsychotic, thyroid to an antidepressant. In ADHD, adding an alpha agonist like guanfacine to a stimulant. In schizophrenia, adding a ripiprazole to clozapine. There are other occasions where the use of two medications is rational. To treat two separate disorders, like an SSRI for OCD, along with methylphenidate for ADHD. To provide temporary relief while waiting for another medication to work, like the temporary use of a benzo or hypnotic, or starting an antidepressant. I'll add to that one combo in particular, Ezopiclone. It has evidence to improve not just sleep, but anxiety when added to an SSRI. Another rational use is to treat a side effect, like propanolol for lithium tremor or metformin for antipsychotic weight gain. Do you have other examples of legit polypharmacy? Send them to us at asktheeditor at thecarlatereport.com. Most of the times, polypharmacy is benign. The medication isn't doing any good, and it's not doing much harm either. Sometimes, actually, polypharmacy is inherent to what we do. Like, the old antipsychotic loxapine is metabolized into the tricyclic antidepressant amoxapine. And, more currently, quetiapine is metabolized into an SNRI-like antidepressant norquetiapine. And, Effexor, vanlafaxine, is metabolized into another SNRI that we all know well, desvenlafaxine pristique. So imagine that. When you give Effexor, venlafaxine, you're actually giving two SNRIs, Effexor and pristique, that it's metabolized into. No one would advocate giving two SNRIs to a patient, but hey, we do it all the time through this kind of metabolic polypharmacy. Now, there are also combinations of meds that do pose serious risks. We'll cover more of those next week in part two of this podcast, but here's a preview. One, benzos with stimulants. Two, antipsychotics with stimulants. Three, multiple serotonergics, particularly if one of them is an MAOI. 4. Multiple hypnotics. 5. Medications with additive side effects like multiple anticholinergics or blood pressure-lowering meds or meds that raise the QTC interval. 6. Combinations that cause one of those meds to go to dangerously high levels due to a drug interaction. This is only a problem if the high level is dangerous, like when a tricyclic is raised by an SSRI, leading to arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. And now for the study of the day. The antipsychotic stimulant combo rides again. 
we make our diagnoses through language, the clinical interview, and we understand our medications through the names that we give them. Those names have changed a lot over time. In the 1950s, stimulants were called antidepressants, and antipsychotics were called major tranquilizers. From that point of view, it makes sense to combine the two for, say, anxious depression, where you need a tranquilizer and an antidepressant. And that is how the combo drug Thoradex was advertised, a combination of dextroamphetamine and Thorazine. Thoradex fell out of favor in the 1960s as the FDA started requiring actual proof of efficacy in 1963. Major tranquilizers had to be rebranded as antipsychotics, which they're actually effective for, and the makers of stimulants were barred from advertising them as antidepressants, as they were unable to find proof that these meds actually improved depression for more than a few days. This month, Otsuka Pharmaceuticals attempted to revive this antipsychotic stimulant combo for a new indication treatment-resistant ADHD. In a large industry-sponsored trial, researchers from the University of Utah randomized 236 adults with ADHD who had failed to respond to a five-week trial of a stimulant to augment with either a placebo in one of the random arms or the antipsychotic Brexpiprazole. Now, they chose Brexpiprazole perhaps because it's been speculated that this antipsychotic might improve cognition through 5-HT1A agonist activity. It also has weak dopamine-blocking activities, suggesting it might not interfere with the therapeutic pathway of the stimulants that these patients were remained on. Brexpiprazole has also improved hyperactivity in rats, although we should point out that the hyperactivity in those rats was caused by amphetamines in that experimental model, which doesn't exactly speak to a mechanism favorable for ADHD here. Brexpiprazole also antagonizes the alpha receptor, and that's something we don't want in ADHD. I mean, think about the alpha agonists. Those are FDA-approved to treat ADHD. So long story short, Brexpiprazole has a lot of scientific theory suggesting it might help ADHD, might make it worse, or might be neutral. Well, let's see how it turned out in this study. And we were not very surprised by the study's results. Brexpiprazole did not help any symptoms of ADHD. But on the other hand, it didn't make it worse. And that can't be said for all antipsychotics, some of which have been shown to dampen the cognitive benefits of stimulants. But that's not quite enough to endorse this combo pill, which the manufacturer has given up on. And we're going to keep on our list of undesirable polypharmacy. Get daily updates on psychiatric research at Dr. Aiken's LinkedIn and Twitter feed at Chris Aiken MD. Join us next week for part two, where we cover the riskiest polypharm combinations. 
earn your CME for this episode from the show notes. Danny Carlatt started the Carlatt Report 20 years ago to cover all things psychiatric without the bias of industry funding. Your support helps us keep it that way. 